You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. All right, take your Bibles. Uh, We're going to start in Acts 2 tonight, where we've, we've been many other times in our series, Why Baptist?, on Wednesday nights, and um, and again, it's not expositional preaching, uh, which is different than what I typically try to do. But uh, but it's more really almost more Bible study and more Bible study in style, which I think is helpful. And uh, we need it. We need to study on doctrine just to reaffirm our positions and and to talk through some of these things. Uh, last week we we began to look at our, at the Baptist distinctive of two ordinances which is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And uh, we did just kind of an introductory overview of what the ordinances are. And we found out that an ordinance is a divinely instituted rite which conveys truth through symbolism. It's a divinely instituted rite which conveys truth through symbolism. And the baptism and the Lord's Supper both convey truth as, as symbols. And they point, um, Christ left the ordinances as a way to remember or symbolize his redemptive work until he comes again. And both of them are pictures of his redemptive work. We, we also looked at, in the book of Corinthians, how both of these ordinances, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, um, are, can be divisive. They can cause division. And we saw how, in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, 1, some were saying, I'm of Paul. There, some were saying, I'm of, I'm of Apollos. Others were saying, I'm of Christ. And Paul said, I'm glad I didn't baptize many of you or it would cause the division to be even worse than what it is. So they were divided over baptism. Who divided or who baptized? And then 1 Corinthians 11, we, we know the, those to be the, the chapters on the Lord's Supper and the communion issue there. They were, they were taking it unworthily. They were, were not taking it in a way that pleased the Lord or scripturally, and it was causing division. And, and I used last week as the overview of these two ordinances to just remind us that we should have the right positions, but we should also have the right disposition. And we can have the right stance and have the right spirit. We don't want to. Um, these are divisive for some reason, and, and we don't want to take them and stand with them and have a bad spirit about it. We want to stand where we ought to stand, but we want to do it with a measure of grace. And I'm grateful that Jesus Christ perfectly balanced it. It's possible to be a capital B Baptist and a capital C Christian all at the same time. Uh, we believe strongly in the positions we hold, though, and we, we want to keep them with confidence. That's why we spend time on doctrine. It, it matters. And, and in this culture, I hope that you see, and in the, again, this may not, may not be the most inspirational preaching. It may not be that which motivates you as much as other preaching will, um, but when, in the culture we live in that's getting further and further away from the truth, I don't know that there are any more important subjects than for us to study doctrine. Um, we need to know where we stand and we must have an understanding why we stand where we stand. And so tonight I want to look at the ordinance of baptism. And I was trying to think of ways to make it a little bit more exciting. I don't want it to not be exciting. And so I just have a baptism story. That's the first, that, that's the first illustration, okay? Um, my, my nephew, oh, look at this. Sorry, I'm distracted tonight. I don't know what that is. Okay, so my nephew was getting baptized. I think he's seven or eight years old. My brother-in-law 
is an assistant pastor at Eastland Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, so he was baptizing my nephew. My, my brother-in-law was in the baptistry saying a few words. And um, my nephew was up in the baptistry with the pastor. And the pastor told him, says, okay, go do a cannonball. So my nephew literally did a cannonball into the baptistry, splashed water all over his dad, all over everywhere. And, and my brother-in-law was tempted at right at first to be frustrated until he looked over in the corner and saw it was the pastor's fault. The pastor told him to do it. Okay, so that's, that's the most exciting baptistry story I've got for you tonight. All right, now, that, now just down to doctrine. Are you ready? I thought that was pretty exciting. You know, this, this baptism ordinance, this ordinance of baptism is so vital, and it really has been throughout church history. I'm not preaching Baptist history. I don't intend to preach Baptist history. But one of the chief historical distinctions between Baptists and other denominations has been the, the Baptist stance on baptism. And, uh, and so we have to understand that. And tonight, the reason that we have a distinction of baptism is, is there are usually typically four different distinctions or distinctives of baptism. And I'm going to throw out five tonight, five elements of scriptural baptism. You've got, and we're going to go through these. You've got first, though, a scriptural candidate, meaning that uh, the subject, the person being baptized, it must be scriptural. And according to the Bible, it must be a born-again individual. Second, you've got a scriptural method, and that's the mode, or, which is, according to the Bible, clearly in my mind, and many others, it teaches immersion, meaning you go into the water. Third, you've got a scriptural motive which is, or, or purpose, and that is to picture Christ's death, to picture his burial, to picture his resurrection, and then also to confess your commitment to Christ. Okay? It's not a sacrament in that being baptized affects your salvation. It, the motive is that you want to display the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world, and you also want to confess that you're committed to Jesus Christ. Number four is a scriptural authority. This is the administrator, meaning that, you know, when I, was a, when I was a kid, I remember my sister and I, we would go to swimming pools and hotels and we would, we would practice baptism on each other. That's what, that's what good Christian school kids did, okay? A good, clean fun, right? Well, my kids did the same thing when we were playing, you know, growing up, they would practice baptism, you know, and, but it, as, as cute as that might be, it's not, uh, it's not authoritative, and, and, I mean, it's just, it's not a scriptural authority. It's not, the administrator is not uh, authoritative. And we're going to look at that. The New Testament church is the scriptural authority for baptism. Number five, then, I throw in also a scriptural identity, which means when you are baptized, you are identifying with the body of doctrine in that local church. So those are the five things we're going to look at. Uh, the, the scriptural candidate, the, the scriptural method or of immersion, the scriptural motive, which is to picture Christ's death and, and convey to the world your commitment to Christ, a scriptural authority and a scriptural identity. We're going to start with a scriptural candidate. And I've talked about this already, but I, I, I think it's a good thing to review. Um, in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, again, it's a verse that we have looked at many times. It says, then they... That gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. It, it implies that baptism is the first step of obedience in the Christian life after someone is saved. And I have to say this then too if you are unwilling 
to take the first scriptural step, you might not have truly submitted yourself to Jesus Christ in the first place. It's important. I mean, listen, this is the first step of obedience in a Christian life. And, and if it's a struggle for you to submit to it, then you might have to question how submitted you are to Christ in the first place. And I would even question, without being judgmental, I would ask you to question the validity of your decision to receive Jesus Christ. Um, it, at that first step of obedience is, should be just natural in the same way that once someone, um, it, it, when it, once a child is old enough um, to take that first step, which we were just a couple of weeks ago looking back in some old videos and, and I actually got Jace's first steps on film, on, on my phone, and we were watching it and it was exciting. That's the natural thing to happen when a child is, is big enough and strong enough, they want to start taking steps. And as a Christian, it's only natural for you to start taking the steps on your Christian journey. I mean, if it's a struggle, if it's pulling teeth, then there are things to evaluate. Um, Acts chapter 8, verse 12. Let's, we're just going to look at some verses. Acts 8, 12. Again, it's a scriptural candidate. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 12. It says, uh, Philip says, but when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ... They were baptized, both men and women. The implication is after they believed the things that Philip had been preaching. Look over at Acts chapter 10. may have to turn quick. Acts chapter 10, verse 47. Here's Peter. He's asking this question. 1047. Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? If someone has received the Holy Ghost... That's the explicit statement that they have received Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're a child of God. And Peter says they've received the Holy Ghost. So is there any reason why they shouldn't be baptized? The implication in his mind was that once a person is saved, they're eligible to be baptized. Conversion precedes baptism. It's the plain teaching of Scripture. And in the Roman church, other Protestant denominations, they practice the baptism of infants and uh, we you know we live in in a part of the country where many of you may have been exposed to that and maybe you even yourself may have been baptized as an infant and as graciously as I can say it there's no grounds for that practice in the bible and and I, and again I'm not trying to make enemies tonight I'm just trying to plainly state what the Bible says, first of all, we believe there's plenty of evidence to suggest that infants are safe and are, are not yet held accountable for their sin in the first place. And so even though they have a sin nature, they don't qualify for Romans chapter 1 where it says that God's wrath is revealed to those who knowingly are, are living in ungodliness. A, a child, an infant, doesn't have the understanding yet. You might call it the age of accountability and the idea is that if a person doesn't understand their sin before God, then they perhaps are not then held accountable. And I do believe that. Um, even the David, King David in 2 Samuel 12, he said that he would go to his son, the, the one that died. He would go to his son, but that his son would not, not come back to him. And that implies that babies are, are not judged for their sin. They're not judged until they reach an, a certain age. And I'm thankful for that. That gives a certain amount of, of comfort, doesn't it? That, that we have scriptural evidence that says that a baby isn't held accountable yet until they get to a point where they sin. You say, well, what age is that? Say, I, I, I couldn't tell you exactly. 
I know, I know some children that get saved at the age of four, and I know some that aren't ready till they're 13 or 14. And as a parent, you have a responsibility, though, to, to, keep, to keep a pulse on the spiritual understanding of your child. And I would say that you can't start early enough giving them the gospel. Uh, give them the gospel early. Let them know. Uh, we did with our children from an early age. We, we wanted them to hear the gospel, and most of our children were saved young. And, and I'm grateful for that, that all of my children have made professions of faith. And they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone. They've all been baptized. I'm grateful for that. They, I, I, it's a blessing to know that. But it is also a comfort to know that a child, according to Scripture, doesn't seem to be, uh, to be um, held accountable uh, and facing God's wrath until they reach a certain age. Uh, the only candidate for true baptism is a believer in Christ, and they come with their own volition to an understanding of their sin and an understanding faith in the gospel. So that's the scriptural candidate. Second, scriptural method is immersion. Let me give you some reasons for this. Turn over to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. The Bible teaches, here's reason number one that we believe immersion it's because the Bible teaches immersion is the mode of baptism. You say, well, don't overcomplicate it, Pastor. I'm not. I'm trying to make it really simple. Our primary reason is that in Scripture, it, it, it's immersion. So look at these verses. Matthew chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. It says, And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem... And all Judea and all the region round about Jordan. And they were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. You say, well, what does that have to do to prove immersion? Well, verse 6 says they were baptized of him. What's the next word? In Jordan. So the implication is they were in the river. And in my estimation, you can't really be in a river unless you're going under the water. So it makes it clear the idea is... Immersion. They were going into the river Jordan. Look at verse 13. Matthew 3, 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. By the way, my understanding, and I haven't been to the Holy Land, although I'd like to go someday, is that Jesus walked 60 miles to get to John the Baptist and be baptized in the Jordan River. And I'm going to bring that up a little bit later as well to show that Jesus Christ saw some important things about baptism. It wasn't just however even he defined it. He was doing it to fulfill his father's righteousness. Look at verse 14. John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me. Can you imagine Jesus Christ coming to you and saying, you're supposed to baptize me? I would say the same thing. No, you should be baptizing me. Um, but look at Jesus says in verse 15, Jesus answering said unto him, suffer it to be not so, I'm sorry, suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. If Jesus had said that to me, I would have suffered him as well. John the Baptist went ahead with it, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the, the heavens were hope, open unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, there's one phrase, though, in there, we're showing that it's immersion baptism. There's one phrase in verse 16. See if you can find it. What's the phrase that makes it seem like it's immersion baptism? Straightway out of the water. So uh, I don't know how, how we could interpret that any other way except that John the Baptist and Jesus Christ 
walked into the Jordan River to get baptized. You can't come out of the water unless you're down in the water. It's very clearly, the idea is conveyed here that this is immersion baptism. And I say, well, if Jesus was immersed, then that kind of seals it. I don't know that I have to look at anything else. If Jesus was immersed, I want to be immersed as well. Uh, look, but let's look over in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Verse 23. John chapter 3, verse 23. says, And John also was baptizing in Anon near, near to Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. So I think the phrase that you know I'm going to use the phrase, there was much water there. Why would there need to be much water if the method was sprinkling? Why would there need to be much water if the method was, was, was pouring over the head or, or just kind of getting it onto your forehead? It, no, there's much water, so that's the natural place then to be baptized. I think we, we see this from Scripture. We, have, we stand on very solid ground that it's an immersion baptism. And I remember I was going to look at, at the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip, and we're not going to, but, but it says when they stopped at the chariot, he said, what did hinder me? And they, it says they went both down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch. Okay, that's reason one. Reason number two is the meaning of the word itself. The meaning of the word baptize is to immerse. That's what it means. And, and I can't change the definition of it or adjust it. That's just what it means. Baptize is a, it's an English word that's a transliteration of a Greek word, baptizo. And it means to whelm. It means to make fully wet. It's the derivative of a root word that literally means to dip. So, I mean, I don't know how you could redefine it. The Bible word clearly is immersion. Reason number three, um, that which baptism pictures requires immersion. And this is the symbolic argument, you might say, and that baptism is a, it's a burial. It symbolizes Jesus Christ. We could read in Romans 6 how we're baptized into Christ, and that word is we're placed into Christ at salvation. Baptism, you know, think about it. If it's a picture of Jesus Christ's death, when someone dies, and not to be... Uh, disrespectful but you don't take the body of someone who has died and set them on top of the ground and sprinkle dirt over the body now you you bury the body and it just very clearly these are very simple easy arguments and yet there are plenty of people that would appear to be smarter than you and I that that don't practice immersion they practice dipping or they practice sprinkling or anointing and yet you can't picture death Without burial. It's the idea. Uh, reason number four. History supports it. And we, we don't, we're not going to get into all that. But I mean it's been historically accepted. That it's immersion. So we've got the scriptural candidate. And the scriptural method. We've got the scriptural motive. This is number three. Here's what it symbolizes. The symbol of baptism is to commemorate Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. I've already mentioned these. They overlap a little bit. And you say, well, this feels a little bit redundant, but it's worth repeating. Pouring and sprinkling can't possibly picture the gospel message. Baptism is not to be performed as a means to earn saving favor or saving grace. Uh, It doesn't absolve us of the guilt of our sins. Jesus' Jesus' death did that. His blood was shed 
for our sins. And so just to be careful, we, we don't assume that baptism supernaturally does something to our sins. If, if baptism could supernaturally do something to our sins, then I ask, why did Jesus have to die on a cross and shed his blood? His blood is what washes away our sin. I'm thankful for that. Baptism, though, is a picture of that saving grace. Paul said that believers are buried with him in baptism and wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And again, connecting baptism um, with Jesus Christ's death. Baptism is not the grounds of salvation, but it is a symbol. And we could look at these. We're, I'm not, I don't have to spend a lot of time here. I know that you know these things, but Ephesians 2.9 states that salvation is not of works lest any man should boast. And baptism, as much as you want to redefine it, it is a work. If you can see it done, it, it cannot help with salvation. Salvation is by faith. And now I, I do believe that if someone has had true faith in Jesus Christ, there will be evidence in their lives. There, there will, we are saved, we are created in Christ Jesus on two good works. Whereas workmanship, according to the very next verse in, he, in Ephesians chapter 2, we, are, we become um, his workmanship. We, we have evidence. And by the way, if you don't have evidence in your life that you are a child of God, again, it's time to reevaluate some things. There should be evidence. There should be a desire for God. There should be works that, that prove that you are a child of God. But don't ever mix the two and think, well, my works are what's getting me to heaven. No, you work with good works because you're on your way to heaven. And there's a big difference between those two things. The order matters. It's kind of like baptism is, it, it reveals the gospel in not just of Jesus, it reveals it in a personal sense. Meaning that, that it is displaying what's happened to you on the inside. It's evidence that, that Jesus Christ has changed you. It reveals the effect of the gospel. It's an outward expression of an inward faith. Like, and I've used this before, it's a wedding ring. You know, a wedding ring doesn't save you, but it shows people that you are. And, and in some ways, and some people would carry this parallel over from the Old Testament. I believe it, you know, there may be some of it, but it, it falls apart some in that they say, well, baptism is kind of like the Old Testament version of circumcision. And that it reveals that you're, that you're of the number of Israel. And, and yet, um, I don't think the parallel is exactly right. And I do think that there are some that would take that parallel and use it as a justification for infant baptism. Because um, in the Old Testament, it was actually babies, you know, young boys, eight years old, that were, that were being circumcised. So be careful to assume that the parallels are exactly the same. Uh, there may, it is a picture, but this is one that you receive by faith. Um, as an adult of your own accord, you know, you're baptized because you understand your sin. You place your faith in Christ. Circumcision was just, it was something that all the young boys in, in Israel did at, at eight days old. So just be mindful of that. It's not exactly the same. Um, number four, scriptural authority. This is over in Matthew 28. Let's look there. Matthew chapter 28. I know it's a lot to go through. Matthew 28. Uh, we've, we've been here at the Great Commission many, many times. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. 
It says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The only proper administrator of scriptural baptism is the New Testament church. And so this is number four, the scriptural authority of baptism. See, this deals with the question. This one deals with the question, who has authority to baptize? And this is a divisive. It's been divisive. It has separated Baptists from many others for many years. And plenty of good people don't see an importance in having the proper authority to baptize. And so they'll accept into membership, you know, anybody maybe who's been immersed or anybody close to their set of beliefs, regardless of who did the immersing. And on the other hand, plenty of Baptists hold a tighter view than that. And I do as well. And that they believe that the authority to baptize takes place through a, a proper New Testament church. And therefore, they'll only accept then maybe or receive into membership those who were baptized um, by a Baptist church of like faith and order. And honestly, I'm, that's where I stand as well. I think it's the safest position. And it's not to discount someone's sincere baptism. And I know, I know men uh, who were baptized um, in the Jordan River by someone they highly respected and they submitted to get rebaptized because of the, uh, the question of authority. I know a man who was raised by his, uh, or was, was baptized by his own dad who was a pastor of a different denomination and he received Christ by faith. He was saved. His dad baptized him. He came to um, the church I was a part of as, a, as an older man. His dad had already passed away um, but because of the, the question of authority, he was willing to submit to scriptural baptism. Those are hard things to let go of. Those aren't easy. Those are sincere. Um, there's, no one is, is downplaying um, the importance of that in somebody's life. But if we're going to stand on authority, then we have to draw a line somewhere. And, and I just stand in, I start with the, uh, Baptist baptism, and then from there we, we evaluate the doctrine, we evaluate the positions, and, and it's not because I think that I'm better than anyone else, it's because I think there was a transfer of authority right here in this local New Testament church from Jesus to the church, the first church. The Great Commission gave to that first church authority to do this. Jesus said, he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth Go ye therefore. Do you, under, do you kind of see the idea of the transfer of authority? He said, now listen, I have authority from heaven. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And the idea is that it was given to me. And then he looks in their eyeballs as the first New Testament church. And he says, go ye therefore with the same authority that I've received from heaven. I'm giving that to you. And that transfer of authority is clear so you say, well, who was it to? Well, you say, well, I think it was to the apostles. Well, I mean, it sounds good, except that once the apostles died, who would carry on the work? They would have had to live forever to keep doing the work. Uh, you say, well, I think it was to individuals. And, but I don't know that that makes sense because it means the individuals are responsible to go into all the world as an individual. You go into all the world. That's impossible. I believe that this was an institutional 
authority. The commission was given institutionally, not individually. It was given to that first New Testament church. And then we believe that, you know, Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We believe that authority has been transferred uh, throughout the years. And we believe that it, that authority resides in Baptist churches. You know, and I mean, I, it's like I don't have, um, you know, I don't have paperwork but I do believe by faith what Jesus Christ has said. He said, I've got authority. I'm giving it to the church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail. Meaning, the church is always going to be here. As long as it's here, it has the authority to carry out baptism. That's, what, that's where we stand. And you say, I just don't see it. As, as long as people are just sincere and they're just doing the best they can, what does it matter? But I, I just have to say, the specifics matter to God. And we wouldn't say if someone got saved after baptism, you know, we wouldn't say, well, if they got saved after baptism, that's good enough. They still have immersion. No, the order matters. I mean, the authority matters. The details matter. And you say, well, I'm not sure it has to matter that much, except that I go back to Matthew chapter three, when Jesus Christ walked 60 miles to go to John the Baptist at the Jordan River. And um, could he, were there many other streams along the way? Probably. Um, he was walking likely, he was with his apostles or his, his followers. There were other disciples that could have baptized him, but he walked 60 miles to go to John the Baptist and get baptized by the right person in the right way there in the Jordan River. And if that's the case, then, then we have to assume that God has a specific plan for baptism. John the Baptist, um, it, you know, it, by the way, I have to say this, you know, it's not the, he's not the reason we're Baptist, called Baptist, but I like the fact that the name on our church sign is in the Bible. So uh, John the Baptist was one of the great men of the New Testament, the forerunner of Christ, and, and uh, I'm glad to be a Baptist, by the way, thankful for it. John the Baptist had heaven's authority to baptize. That's where Jesus went. So when Jesus Christ first planted that church in Jerusalem, they had divine authority to baptize and Jesus authorized his disciples to baptize. We can see in John 4 how they were baptizing. They baptized many more than John the Baptist ever did. Although Jesus Christ didn't himself baptize, he sanctioned his, his apostles to do the baptizing, which once again shows that there is an authority granted. Jesus Christ said his, his apostles were the ones doing the baptizing. Jesus didn't do it himself. And I just, it, it means something. There's an authority there. We have to trust that. And you could go all through the New Testament and see that anyone who went out preaching and baptizing was not a lone, a lone ranger. They weren't just out doing it on their own. They were doing it under the authority of a, of a local church. And it, it's, it just carries on. That's why we try to do it the way that the Bible shows. We value the authority of baptism. And, and because of that, we try to discern where to draw lines. And I know that's a hard decision that gets a little bit sticky with some. Whether or not we like it, though, all of us draw lines. You know, we, if I was to throw out some names of certain religions or certain cults that don't believe like us, you would probably say, well, we wouldn't accept that. That's not a baptism we would accept. I mean, so, so we have to admit then that we all would draw a line somewhere, right? Because there are certain, that, certain baptisms you would think we shouldn't accept that. So, so would you then just have um, trust that the Lord has placed you here 
under, under a leadership and pastor that wants to do things the right way. And if I draw a line tighter than maybe that you would draw, would you just assume that I'm doing it because I'm, I want to be extra safe, extra careful? And it's not a matter of control. It's a matter of safety. And so if you would draw a line, we'd all draw a line somewhere on the spectrum. If you draw your line over here, but I would draw mine really tight over here. Just trust then that my mindset is not control. It's that Jesus walked 60 miles to get baptized by the right person. And if that's the case, then Jesus transferred his authority to the local church. And that, that, tra- that authority has been passed on through the centuries. Let's just assume then it's okay for us to be tight. It's okay for us to have a tight position on baptism. As long as we remember what we talked about last week. It's not just about the right position, it's about the right disposition. And I think the reason a lot of people are turned off by those with the right positions is because they don't have the right disposition to balance it out. Let's have the right position and the right disposition, and I think that we'll be safe. One more element of scriptural baptism, then we'll be done. It's scriptural identification. Baptism is a public declaration of personal faith in Christ. And so baptism is an identification with Christ and his gospel. And that's why when, when I get up there to baptize, assume I don't, assuming I don't fumble all over my words, I say, um, we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Okay, we're, we're, we're making very clear based on that, that we're baptizing, this is a certain baptism. It's identifying with Jesus Christ and his teaching and his gospel, it identifies not just, it doesn't just identify with us with Christ. It also, though, identifies us with the congregation, the body doing the baptizing. John didn't just let the Pharisees. Think about it. If you go back to Matthew 3, John didn't just let the, the Pharisees come and get baptized. They weren't on board with what he was teaching. So you've got to bring fruits, meat for repentance, he said. So New Testament baptism was a public declaration that you accept all of the doctrines that Jesus Christ and his apostles are teaching. You're accepting that. And again, you say, well, why is it so tight? Well, because the Bible is. I mean, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They were being baptized into a certain set of beliefs. This wasn't just, oh, baptism for the sake of beauty or baptism for the sake of, you know, well, it was a nice gesture. No, they were saying, we are aligning ourselves with the apostles' doctrine. So to be baptized at Eastside Baptist Church, it means you've not only made a public profession of your faith, but you've identified with this church and its teaching. And that's why Baptists have historically taken it so seriously, because baptism identifies doctrine. So in summary, baptism is the immersion in water of a genuine believer by a New Testament church to symbolize the gospel and identify that individual with that church. And that's a mouthful. I'm going to read it again. In summary, baptism is the immersion in water of a genuine believer by a New Testament church to symbolize the gospel and identify the individual with that church. You've got a scriptural candidate, you've got a scriptural method, a scriptural motive, a scriptural authority, 
and a scriptural identity. And so I'm asking, in your, in your life experience, in your Christian journey, are all of those present? Scriptural candidate, meaning, and these are hard questions, but meaning that was it the right order for you? Okay, I received Christ as my Savior at this point in time on the chronological timeline, and I was baptized after that. If the order is flipped, then, then it's not a scriptural baptism. So, scriptural candidate. Is there a scriptural method by immersion? Say, well, yes, I was saved and then I was baptized, but if it wasn't by immersion, then, then it's not, according to New Testament, not a scriptural baptism. Is a scriptural motive? Was it to picture the gospel and discipleship? Or when you were baptized, were you thinking, hey, this is going to help me get to heaven? Because if you were placing your trust in a, in, a, in a trip into the water, then that's not faith in Jesus Christ alone. And you have to be careful that you're not trusting in something that the Bible says cannot help you get to heaven. It's, it's, not, a, it's not about... Um, a gesture, I mean, if you, were, if you were saying, listen, I thought this was my, my ticket, then, then that's not a scriptural baptism. And we need to evaluate your salvation. Uh, so, scriptural candidate, method, motive, scriptural authority. Uh, who was the administrator? And was it a New Testament church? You know, was it a Baptist church? Was it, was it a church that had doctrine that lines up with scripture? Was it was it an administrator that it was trustworthy? Was it scriptural? And then last, was it scriptural identity? Were you identifying what your baptism was and identifying with a set of doctrines? Um, can you have full confidence even now that the baptism, identifying with that doctrine, it was still valid and that you can, with clear conscience, say, well, I was, I was being baptized into a body that I still, I still agree with. You know, these are all questions we just need to confront ourselves with. Uh, and my reason is not to make you doubt anything. It's to make you just, I want to do, do things the right way. I mean, if Christ walked, I, and I keep going back to it, if he walked 60 miles, you know, I should be willing then as a believer to say, okay, 60 miles, that's a long ways to go. I'd be willing then to submit to scriptural baptism because I want this to be done the right way. So have you received scriptural baptism? And if not, would you be willing to submit to it? And maybe that fits some folks in this room tonight, but maybe the rest, the vast majority that doesn't apply to. So let me then ask you to take a step back and say, have you been scripturally baptized? Your first public act of obedience was a crystal clear picture of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's, that's the picture. So let me ask you then, how clearly has your life revealed Jesus Christ since? Because when you get baptized, you're saying to the world, look, I picture Christ. I'm picturing Christ, not just what he did, but in my life. I want my life to picture Christ. Um, but listen, it's just as, that's not the only time you're supposed to picture Christ. And sometimes we're gung-ho at the beginning, but we lose sight of what we're supposed to be picturing the rest of our lives. So think about it. Your first step of obedience was public testimony of Jesus Christ. And that's supposed to set the tone for the rest of your life. So don't forget that you are to continue to reflect Jesus Christ in your everyday life. It's still supposed to be part of your life. Why would he require more of a brand new baby Christian than he would somebody who's been saved for 25 years? 
Baptism sets the tone of our lives as both submissive and reflective of our Savior. It matters, and it's important in the same way that your spirit toward other people is important. You're supposed to picture Christ. In the same way that you serve others with humility, you're supposed to picture Christ. The Christian life details, they matter. Baptism is just the first step in a life that lets others see Christ in us. The way it's done matters. So if God is specific in the way we live for Christ in the small ways every day, how much more would he be interested in this big step of obedience and baptism? He's interested. It matters to him. And if it matters to him, then it should matter to us. And so as a church, you know, I'm, I'm just here to say as, as long as I'm your pastor, we, we will not uh, lower the standards for baptism just because culture starts to expect something different. You know, we're going to do it, though, with the right spirit. We want to have a good spirit about it. We want to say, listen, this is, this is why we do it. We try to articulate it. We're going to draw our lines. Everyone draws our lines somewhere else. We just choose to draw it a little tighter. And we ask that you just respect that. Jesus Christ drew his lines pretty tight. But let's have a good spirit about it in the, in the process. And then for those that may not have a scriptural baptism, you know, maybe it's time, you know, that we had a conversation and you say, well, you know, I've been, you know, I've been a member of a, of a church or I've been coming to church for a long time. And, you know, that'd be kind of a strange thing to do now. Well, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, to do something to do it the right way. I mean, that's, that's never a bad thing to do. It might take some humility and you might think, well, you know, I'm, I don't know that I fully see the reason for it. I, I understand that too. But if God wants you at Eastside Baptist, then you should be willing to submit to whatever is asked of you because you're convinced God wants you here. And there, have been, there are people in this room that have done that very thing. Amen. And I'm thankful for the humility and the willing to, willingness to submit. Even if they don't see eye to eye with every jot and tittle, they said, but we know God wants us here, so we'll submit to it. So would you be willing to submit? Let's, if we need to talk about it, visit about it, that's fine. But to everybody else, let me just say, I hope that baptism is not the most obvious reflection of Christ in your life. I hope ever since then it hasn't been a little bit muddy because you've, you've kind of been, maybe been living for yourself or in your spirit with somebody else. It's not been very clear. No, if baptism sets the tone, then everything we do should tell the world, hey, I'm with Jesus. And I hope that your spirit and your daily life, your words, your attitudes, your actions, the way you deal with other people, I hope it all says, hey, I'm with Jesus. And uh, that, that's the best way to carry on with obedience after that first step of baptism. Maybe a hard one to apply, but, I, but I, I think I can think of plenty in my own life I can apply it to tonight. So let's take some time. Let's stand. We'll take uh, some time for invitation this evening. And if God has spoken to you about this, then maybe take, take a moment to respond. Uh, maybe you could t- spend some time praying that God would protect our church to always stand where we ought to stand on the issues that matter like this. And so let's just ask him to do work in us uh, this evening, however he sees fit. Father, I thank you for the, the word. I thank you for the truth. I pray that you'd help us to submit to you, Lord. For those that may not have scriptural baptism, I pray that you would help them to come to terms with that. We want to just make sure we do things the right way. But second, Lord, for those who, who haven't been exhibiting Christ in their daily lives. Uh, maybe this is a reminder that, yeah, I started off strong in baptism, but it hasn't been very strong since. God, would you help us in every way, every day, to exhibit, portray, and reflect Jesus Christ as followers, Lord. 
And I, again, and I just go back to as well the fact that you walk 60 miles, which means that doing things the right way is always worth it. Help us to do, in our Christian lives, help us to do things the right way. And not just to get by or do it because, you know, well, we've got to get it done. No, let's do it the right way. Right? You'd help us to do that in our ministries. Help us to do that as we deal with each other. Help us as parents to do things the right way, to not take the shortcuts, but realize that, that if you didn't take the shortcuts, then obviously there's some lessons to be learned for us in our lives. Lord, however you want to apply it, uh, we are asking for your help as we take just a moment of invitation here tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.